Welcome to the Do This Feel Better podcast. Do this, feel better. Do this, feel better. Do this, feel better. The podcast that shares tips on how you can feel better during these crazy times. I'm your host, Jay Nackless. And yes, that was a theme song. <laughs> Heck yeah, boy. I always said if I was going to do a podcast, I had to have a theme song. You must. And I was an 80s TV theme nerd. So podcast, you got to have a theme. And I'm fortunate. Like, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself in a few here. And then I'll explain to you why I'm doing this podcast and how I hope that it's going to help you. But <laughs> first, the theme song. I am a radio geek spent many, many years in radio. And so I have met a lot of talented people, people way more talented than me, particularly in the music business. I live vicariously through them. So it worked out in that when I needed a theme song for my podcast, I knew somebody that could make one for me. So I called up my friend, Sam Fisher, and I'm going to read you exactly what I said because I texted him first. Okay. I said, hey, Sam, are you up for helping me with a little something? And he texts right back and says, absolutely. So I text, I like that you said yes before I told you what it is. Happy face emoji. Got a quick minute to chat. So we get on the phone and I say, uh, maybe this sounds a little weird, but last night I had a, a dream, a vision. I heard the song in my head, the theme song. And so I, I kind of, uh, I hummed it for him and, and he goes, do me a favor, send it in a voice memo and I'll put something together for you. And I said, okay, cool. So this is the actual voice memo that I sent Sam. Okay. So the, um, the baseline kind of goes something like this. Bump, 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 bump. And the singing would go, do this, feel better, do this, feel better, do this, feel better. And then, you know, and then I didn't hear from him for a week. Okay. And so. I texted him back and I said, hey, was the voice memo what you needed? And he writes back, yep, worked on the music today, bass and drums. I'll cut vocals the next day or so and then spend a few days mixing it. And I'm thinking, oh, this is unbelievable. And then all of a sudden he says, here's a taste. No judgment. It's still super rough and unmixed. And this is what he texts me. And I'm like, are you kidding me? The the song, the tune that I had in my head, that I wrote in my head, I don't have the talent, so I don't write music. I don't have the talent to actually like make that into a song, but he took that and made it into a song. I just I was so geeked about that. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And so that's how that's how we ended up coming up with uh that's how we ended up coming up with the theme song. <laughs> so here's my story. I started in radio when I was 15 years old. There was an internship program where I grew up in San Francisco called Enterprise for High School Students. 
And I wanted to work at a station called KNBR, which is a sports station still today. Um, they covered the San Francisco Giants, my team. And I envisioned myself in the summer internship at Candlestick Park, which is now gone, but then was the home of the Giants. And I envisioned myself back to like dreams, uh, you know, being in the in the booth all summer and, and helping out, you know, maybe I'll get to do some play by play. So I didn't get that internship. And instead, they offered me an internship at a radio station called X100 which was a top 40 station in San Francisco. And I didn't want it. I was like, I want to be a sports broadcaster. <laughs> Who at 15 and a half is uh, that set on their goals? Me. And so thanks to my mom uh, redirecting me and saying, no, you should really see what this is all about. I ended up doing that internship for X100. And it was unbelievable because they let me do everything. I mean, I worked in promotions and research and I got to... Uh, run the board, which is basically like be the in-house engineer for um, Rick D's and Casey Kasem's countdown shows. And I just got this unbelievable amount of experience. And then from there, I went to Syracuse University and, and I got to work uh, in an amazing college station called WJPZ. And from there, I worked in markets. I worked in San Francisco. I got to come back home at work at a station called K101, Syracuse, Buffalo, Detroit, Raleigh. And when I tell you that I loved my work, loved my job. I knew that radio was for me, you know, and I don't, I don't take that for granted because I know that the majority of people don't like their jobs. And that was always crazy to me. What do you mean you don't like your job? Well, it's a job, right? You go there, you have to do it. You do it to make money, but you don't do it because you love it. And I loved it. And radio Radio people don't get into it for the money. A lot of people think radio pays more than it does. You do it for the passion. And it's often very long hours. Um, but it's really, really fun. I mean, you get to go to these unbelievable concerts. I got to meet an insane amount of celebrities. I broadcast live from the Grammy Awards. Um, it was ridiculous. I loved it. Even back then, though, I was too obsessive about my work. And what I mean by that is that I wasn't able to... I wasn't able to create that work-life balance. And so there was always this pressure being put on the home life. And so I was the one that would be staying until 9 or 10 o'clock at night on a Friday. And I'd be the one that would be running in on the weekends in case something went wrong. And, and it really, uh, it was tough. And then that was, that was kind of tough in the home life. But it was okay because I was, I was loving my job. And, and so that balanced it enough that things were okay. But... Looking back on it, it was, uh, I wasn't handling it as well as I thought I was in the moment, if that makes sense. Okay, now I'm going to fast forward. It's still a rewind from where we are now, but I'm going to fast forward to 2014. And then I was given the chance to do something different. Now, as a program director, which I was in radio, I was also on the air, as a program director in radio, you do a fair amount of marketing. But being a marketing director is something way different, more different than I thought, to be honest with you. And there was a guy um, by the name of Scott who, uh, who owned a school in town, and he wanted me to come do marketing for him. He was a client at the radio station. He ran his advertising on a radio station, so we knew each other very well. And I looked at it. Here's how I looked at it at that time. I said... If I can do marketing 
you know, in the education space, you know, that would make me valuable in all kinds of spaces. I was thinking about, I was, I was putting my, you know, how in interviews they love to ask about your five-year goal. Where do you see yourself five years from now? I don't know. Okay. Well, <laughs> I wanted to find myself more valuable in five years or 10 years or 15 years. So I took this on and I stepped way out of my comfort zone. And in many respects, it was a really good experience. It made me a better marketer. I developed all kinds of new skills. It's funny. The first thing I did when I, when I took that job was I went to a Microsoft conference because this was a tech school and everyone at the Microsoft conference, people in IT and information technology, they speak like doctors. They have a whole different language. It's like gibberish. So I'd be sitting in these conferences and I'd be listening to the speaker and I'd be copying stuff down. And when I didn't understand a word, which was a lot, I'd write the word down and then later I'd Google it. <laughs> the list was long. So I was, I was stepping way out of my comfort zone. And it also gave me, you know what, this job gave me a lot tougher skin. And I was learning so much stuff. However, it was a very bad culture fit. And for me, culture at the workplace is everything. It's really important. I need a collaborative work environment. I need a positive, supportive work environment. And what I started doing is I started bringing the negativity of the workplace home with me. So back to this work-life balance thing, and maybe you can relate to this. The work-life balance, when I was in radio full-time, I was loving my job, and so I wasn't bringing negativity home with me, but because of the obsessiveness and the hours and me over-worrying about certain things that didn't need to be worried about, it was putting some pressure on the home life. This was different. So when I was with the school, now I was bringing home loads, mounds of negativity. If you're bringing home that kind of negativity from the workplace is going to poison the home life. And that's what started happening. And even those positive people, because I've always been, I think, a pretty positive person. Well, it was overwhelming to me. And now I started poisoning the home environment. So at first, I did something that uh, maybe you've done at points like this in your life, which is you find areas of blame. I'm miserable because people are talking behind my back. I'm miserable because I'm being watched on a camera in my cubicle. I'm miserable because my personal time isn't being valued. But this exercise, you think it's helping because you're venting. You're like, oh, I'm supposed to vent. But what's happening is you ever see one of those giant balls that they put together at like, uh, if you go visit your kid's school um, and they give you a name tag or you go to a kid's museum. There's one in town here called Marbles. They give you a name tag. And then when you're done and you leave, you put the tag on this ball and the ball gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it becomes this giant ball. Well, the thing is, the ball ends up getting so big, they have to get rid of it because they don't have room for it. It's overwhelming. Well, that's your complaining. You've done so much complaining and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And now it's got nowhere to go. It's taking up all the air. All of the energy in the room, there's no room. Everybody else is suffocating. It's multiplying and it starts to feel worse. So this is, the, this is kind of the mental state I was in, in late 2014, because it really only took a few months for things to start feeling not good uh, in this position. So my wife, Jennifer, and I, we were married on August 10th, 1997. So in August 2014, August 11th, 
We had just been celebrating our 17th anniversary. We're sitting at a table next to the pool in our neighborhood. And this push alert came across our phones at the same time. And I looked down at it and it said, Robin Williams, dead at 63. And this hit me hard. And, uh, you know, for me, I mean, maybe some people, maybe you, uh, when you hear the death of celebrities, it affects you some more than others, certainly. Um, Usually they don't affect me much. I will say, I remember hearing uh, the day I was listening to the radio, the day that Prince died, and they first reported that, that they had found a body in an elevator at Paisley Park. And I'm just, and my first reaction was, well, yeah, but it had to have been like someone there for a party. And then when they came back and said it was Prince, I just, I I wept. I wept in my car. Um, Prince was, mm, I love that guy. Wow. So that, that was a big one. But this Robin Williams, I have to explain to you why this affected, this left me completely speechless. I didn't even cry because I just sat there blank staring. And here's why. About a year and a half prior, January 26, 2013, that was one of the best nights of my life. I was still working in radio and Robin Williams was doing a concert at the Durham Performing Arts Center, which is DPAC for short. And it was billed as an evening of sit down with Robin Williams. And the host was a guy by the name of David Steinberg. And David was going to be interviewing Robin. And although it was billed as a night of sit down. It was really not much sitting down. Like they would start sitting down on a couch and then David would ask a question, like for example, about Mork and Mindy. Um, and then he'd get up and he'd you know jump up and he'd start running around. And the next thing you know, he's Mork from Mork, right? Or he'd ask a question about good morning Vietnam. And then Robin would, he'd pop up and he'd start running around and, and start, you know, acting like Adrian Cronauer. And it was, uh, it was so fun. It was, and in fact, that show, I'd seen Robin do stand up in Detroit a few years before that. This was so much better. This was so good. And it was like a year and a half before he died. So I got to be the DJ that introed Robin Williams at DPAC. And that was a special thing. Um, and not that I hadn't, like in radio, if you're, if you're a DJ or an air talent, you, you get to do that kind of thing. It's, it's fairly common where you get to introduce concerts, shows. Um, but normally, nobody tells you what to do. You will go up there and you'll pimp the radio station a little bit. You'll say some stuff about what's going on. And then, you know, ladies and gentlemen, poison, whatever. <laughs> so um, in this case, it was really different because A, you had to be selected. Like they had to put me in as a, as a candidate as a recommended candidate to do it. And then Robin and David's team had to accept me. So that was like, I'd never had that before. That was really cool. The second part of it was they wanted me to get there an hour before the show and go backstage for these instructions. Never had that before. So there I am at DPAC and they take me backstage. And neat thing about DPAC is that, and there are some theaters that do this, where when the act comes through, they sign the wall. And so you've got this wall at DPAC that's filled with signatures of all these people that have played there. Really neat. So I'm back there and I'm standing in the hallway and just waiting for the next instructions. And the next thing you know, there's Robin Williams just popping out of the, he's popping out of everywhere. <laughs> so he pops out of, of his dressing room. He's like, hey, and, and I'm like, hey. 
And we just start talking and, you know, he finds out that, that I'm from San Francisco. And of course, he's from San Francisco. We start telling stories uh, about each other and um, joking about the, the real gold in the roof at City Hall in San Francisco, all kinds of stuff, just silly stuff like that. And but the best part is then he looks on the wall. He's like, a you know, it's like ADD is with a squ- squirrel. He sees a signature and there's Whoopi Goldberg's signature. Whoopi had been at Deepak. I want to say like the week before or days before the day before. I don't remember. It was very recently. And he's like, holy shit, Whoopi Goldberg was here. I was like, yeah. And the next thing you know, he's telling a story about having dinner at Whoopi's dad's, Whoopi's parents' house and, and what that was like and nicknames. And it was just so, it was like you're talking to this guy that you've known your whole life. It was so good. And then we finished that and... Uh, and then David Steinberg comes out and he says, Hey Jay, come on down and let's talk. I'm like, okay, great. So now I'm in David Steinberg's dressing room and we're just BSing and having fun. And, and, and the, the goal. So David is telling me that the goal for this introduction is I'm going to come on before this movie. It's like a montage, a five minute montage about Robin's career. But what he wanted to do was that I was going to essentially sell David explain to people who David is because, you know, everybody that's there to see Robin Williams, I mean, everybody knows a fair amount about Robin Williams, but most people don't know about David Steinberg. And, you know, it turns out David Steinberg uh, appeared on The Tonight Show 140 times. The only person that has appeared on The Tonight Show more is Bob Hope. So, like, that's one of the things I'm telling the crowd, right? And he also is a writer for... Uh, Mad About You and Friends. He's got this incredible resume. Great stand-up comedian. So he says, listen, listen, feel free to ad-lib when you go out there. Have fun. And and then when you're done talking about me and stuff, and you'll say, and then coming up next, you know, the star of our show, Robin Williams, and the, the movie starts. So I go out there and I'm really nervous because I've never had any of this lead up before. And I get out there and... And it went really well, sold out crowd and the light is in my face and I'm, I'm doing a whole bunch of dramatic pauses for effect. And I would say, for example, you know, and did you know um, that this guy has appeared on the Tonight Show stage 140 times? You know, long pause. And, Anyone like the show Friends? <laughs> and so by the time I got to, you know, ladies and gentlemen, coming up, Robin Williams, crowd goes crazy. And I look to the side, I'm about to get off the stage and I look to the side and there is Robin jumping up and down like a kid <laughs> for me. And I walk over there and he puts his hand out and he says, that was great, chief chief. That was so good. And I don't know what I liked better. I don't know that it, like his enthusiasm or the fact that he called me chief. So what a night. So now fast forward again a year and a half. And and I'm thinking about the fact that Robin Williams, who seemingly had it all, we know now that, you know, he was dealing with, he was, I think he was misdiagnosed with Parkinson's. He had this other disease. It was really debilitating. And, um, and that led to him committing suicide. He had always dealt with depression and kinds of things throughout his life. But, you know, I'm thinking about when I read this push alert, back to that, I'm just thinking to myself, yeah, here I am. And I'm, I'm so, 
I'm bringing negativity home. I'm really not doing well and uh, I'm really depressed. And I, I just, and here's Robin Williams committing suicide. I feel like I need to do something. So the next day uh, I went to my doctor and I got some help. And I said to him, I told him the story. It was the very next day. And I told him the story about Robin Williams and the doctor who was amazing, by the way, his name is Dr. Warner. And he's no, he's no longer a, he's like a family practitioner, but he no he no longer does it for like a general practice anymore because he's the kind of guy that he would always say that if you work for a hospital, for example, they, it's like a churn and burn. They want you to see as many patients as possible. So they don't want you to spend a lot of time. And Dr. Warner was the opposite of that. He'd literally spend 45 minutes just talking to you, getting to know you making sure that that you were okay. So he ended up getting uh, a gig working at Cisco, the networking company, so that he didn't have to have the pressure of going through so many patients in a day, which is great because he was the best. Anyway, Dr. Warner was just so empathetic and he said, you know, you're so brave to come see me and do this and admit that you needed help. And he starts talking about medication. And I never saw myself taking medication like an antidepressant. I never saw that. Not so much that I saw it as a sign of weakness, which many do, and it's okay if you do. For me, it was more like, uh, I don't know. I don't need that. I don't have thought, you know, medicine, it's not going to help. Or I'm not depressed. <laughs> I'm fine. It's just a phase. And what they do with medication in my case, and I know in many cases, is they, they have to figure it out because different medications work differently for different people. And then different doses of these medications work differently for different people. So even for me, there were probably three different combinations of drugs that they went through before they finally got the right combination. And then they did. And I started to feel better. And not like, not like a magic bullet. It wasn't like a magic pill at all. And it's not like I started doing the happy dance. It wasn't like that either. What medication did for me is it allowed me the clarity to start working on myself. Because prior to the medication, what would happen is um, there were a lot of different ways I would describe it. One way is that the thoughts in my head got so overwhelming that it felt like, uh, you know, if you picture a giant hand squeezing your head there's so much pressure and all these words and all these thoughts were racing and racing and racing, like doing a sprint around your brain. Um, it was scary. Like really it's a scary feeling. And then sometimes it was the opposite. Sometimes it was like a feeling of blankness of nothingness. And that was scary too, because I wasn't feeling anything. So I would say for me, medication just balanced things out a little bit. It didn't just suddenly make me happy. But it allowed me to figure out ways to get better, ways to use some self-care. So first of all, the, the, the big takeaway, I mean, this episode is about why I'm doing this, but uh, the big takeaway from this episode is if you have felt depressed or anxious, don't be afraid of medication if you've never tried it before. Talk to your doctor about it. Be brave. 
It's not a sign of weakness and it can help. And by the way, it doesn't mean that it's forever. I've been off medication for the last couple of years. It took me some time to get there, but don't be afraid of medication. And especially now, this is another reason why I'm doing this now is this was all, all this stuff that I went through was pre-pandemic. And I've often thought about if I was going through that stuff that I went through then now during COVID, oh my God. So I know that there are so many of you out there that are just experiencing these horrible thoughts and looking for a way out. And medication is one way to start it, but it's not the end at all. And the self-care part takes a lot of work. So I, in the six years since Robin Williams died, um, I've just done I've, a few things. One is I've learned a lot of things from other people. I've gone to workshops, therapy, Lots of incredible conversations with people, including my wife. These things that I've learned, I want to share some of those things with you. Other things are things that I figured out myself. They're books that I read. They're techniques that I came up with. And I want to share those with you too. They're ways that, that helped me for self-care. They may not necessarily help you, but they might. And then I also want this to be a collaborative process. I want you to share your thoughts and your strategies as well so that we can um, help each other. So let's get on this adventure together. In the next episode, I'll be back with the first strategy that you can do to feel better. Thanks for listening to Do This Feel Better. I'm Jay Nackless. Do this, feel better.